This morning, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. John Huffman, who is our special pulpit guest today. And I just want to say a quick word about him, although all that can be said could not fit into the time we have. Uh, John did his undergraduate work at Wheaton College, his Master of Divinity at Princeton Seminary, his Doctor of Ministry at Princeton Seminary, and in addition to those institutions, has studied at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs at Princeton, at Harvard University, and also at the University of Tulsa, where he received an additional Master's in American History. Uh, John has been uh, a pastor for just a few years now. Uh, He did his uh, seminary uh, training uh, work under uh, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale at the famous Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan, and also at the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. He had pastorates in Key Biscayne, Florida, and in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but for, for since 1978, I believe, has been the senior pastor of the 3,100-member St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach, California. Not a bad place to spend all of those decades, I may, might add. Uh, John uh, has been very, very involved in the global affairs of the church, uh, serving on the boards of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, World Vision. Uh, as chairman of Christianity uh, Today, he has been an uh, a active leader within the National Association of Evangelicals in the global ecumenical movement. I could go on and on describing the many places that God has used this very humble, uh, committed servant uh, to represent him and to lead the church. Uh, John's also done chaplaincy work with the Miami Dolphins, and the PGA Senior Golf Tour, among other locations, traveled the world widely and has so much to say to us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, John and his wife, Anne, are blessed to have had three marvelous daughters, one of whom, Janet, is seated with us right in the front of the sanctuary today alongside of, of John's lovely mother. And I see now where the good looks come from, Mrs. Huffman. It is a joy to welcome you here to Christ Church as well. I hope you will join me now in giving a very warm welcome to Dr. John Huffman. Thank you, brother. Good to be with you. Fun. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. It's so good to be here at Christ Church Oak Brook. I've never been inside the sanctuary till this morning. I drove by it years ago. And was so impressed by the architecture on the outside. And I knew many of your people who would come down to Key Biscayne at winter to vacation. And uh, knew Arctic Kreider and appreciated art. And uh, Dan and I have one distinguishing quality in common. We both succeeded the same Dr. Charles Deerenfield. He did at Rancho Santa Fe and I did at St. Andrews in Newport Beach. Not many people can say that. And I've appreciated Dan's distinguished ministry with you here. And also, the architecture so impressed me when I saw it that when we started to rebuild our whole plant out in uh, campus, out in Newport Beach, we brought in Ed Ware, who uh, was your original architect here, and I'm so grateful for his visionary insight into church architecture. What a joy it is to be with you today, but I don't want to detract from the preaching of God's Word by all the things I could talk about uh, uh, that we hold in common and uh, 
a deep appreciation for Dan and his family. But would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and I'd ask you to stand and honor the Word of God as we read from Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this God's Word as it's read. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, what? Faultless, he says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should Take such things, a view of things. If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's always a challenge to know what to say when you have one opportunity to talk to a group of people like I have this morning. Last spring, when I announced I'm stepping down as pastor at St. Andrews in November, I announced I was going to preach on the topic, what I would say if this was my last sermon. And it was Easter. And I preached on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will not be my last sermon at St. Andrews. That will be sort of a warm, fuzzy family kind of message. But as I preached on hundreds of different texts, as every pastor does through many years of ministry, being ordained back in 1965, there's one message that has been a kind of mantra for my life. And I'd like to share with you today how you can live beyond yourself. It's a message that I remind myself of frequently. 
as I find myself often boxed in, boxed in by some good things I've done, boxed in by some of the failures of life, boxed in by circumstances of life that are simply beyond my control, as many of us are discovering in the meltdown of our economy, in the realities of raising children, in the complexity of life, and now grandchildren, and realizing all the pressures we have, and some of the stuff for which we're accountable that boxes us in, some of the stuff for which we're not accountable. I'm driven back constantly to this passage of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is writing from, we believe, a prison in Rome not too long before his martyrdom, not too long before he becomes what in the Roman Catholic sense of the term is a saint. Now we Protestants believe in the sainthood of all believers, but we're talking about that rarefied kind of person that goes down in history as that special kind of saint. And if we read what he says about himself, we can take great courage. For he's writing to believers in northern Greece, in the city of Philippi, where years before he and Silas had traveled, They had thrown the demons out of that young woman who was being used by her owners. They had led Lydia, that seller of purple dyes and purple goods, uh, to a faith in Jesus Christ. They were thrown into prison, and you remember the songs of the night which they sang, and ultimately the earthquake and the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household. So many things that were part of his heart relationship with the believers in northern Greece. And now he writes to them what, if I were in jail, would be sort of a gloomy letter, but for him it's one of the most joyous of his epistles. And tucked into it, he gives what I have found to be the most helpful four-step way in which you and I can live beyond ourselves. So if you're not a note-taker, I urge you to at least take notes and write down these four steps and contemplate them this week and consider integrating them into your life. Four steps into how you can live beyond yourself. Step one. You ready? Face up to the fact you're not perfect. The Apostle Paul close to his martyrdom, we read about it. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he lists all the credentials, and he goes on to say, hmm, but I consider it all rubbish for the sake of Jesus Christ. My friends, our perfection is not in and of ourselves. Yet we live in a culture of the self-made man and woman culture. And we are subject to what I like to call the Horatio Alger syndrome. You familiar with Horatio Alger? One time I was giving the training meal devotional to the Seattle Seahawks. And I rhetorically asked the question, anyone here know who Horatio Alger was? Now, in sports chaplaincy I found... Golfers and baseball players are the most laid back before a game. But football players are intense. They don't know but what this is the game. They blow their knee. 
Uh, they don't know what's going to happen, you know, and, and they, 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 they sit there, and you're not sure they're hearing anything. And, and, and so I used a rhetorical question, and I said, anyone you know who Hazel Alger was? And finally, after a few moments of total silence and non-communication verbally, suddenly a big coach, about 6'8", jumped to his feet, about 300 pounds. He said, I know. I said, who was he? He said, that dirty commie Richard Nixon went after. <laughs> that was Alger Hiss. Horatio Alger is the rags-to-riches story. Self-made man. And every year, they give a Horatio Alger award to self-made men and now self-made women. I've attended it. I've not received it, but I've attended it. And it's very interesting to observe what happens after they give all these wonderful attributes of this person who went from rags to riches and look how successful he, she is, they get up and spend the next few minutes thanking their mother, their father, their coach, their teacher, their employees, and so forth, and you realize there is no such thing as a self-made person. Every one of us at least has a mother. Mine is seated right down here on the third row. And every one of us has a father. Hopefully we know who that person is. But the reality, we have coaches and teachers and people who have helped us become who we are, have we not? And to buy into the Horatio Alger syndrome is to walk through life on crutches of glass that can shatter at any moment when something goes wrong that's beyond our control or something goes wrong that we bring to our own life. Dan and I are collectors of books. We like to read. I'm trying to figure out what to do with the thousands of books I have when I retire in November. If I could keep only ten of the books on my shelves, one of them would be a book by Paul Tournier, the late Swiss psychiatrist. He wrote many books. The one he's most famous for is The Meaning of Persons. Uh, the one that I most recently read is How to Grow Old. Uh, which I appreciate very much. Uh, and, uh, but the one that I would hold on to the rest of my life is a book titled The Strong and the Weak. In this book, Tournay argues that there are two kinds of weakness. One is the weakness of weakness. And most of us understand what that is. Many of us have been through therapy. My wife is a psychoanalyst. That is her business. She's been through it. I've been through it myself. We've been through it together. And the reality is, in times of weakness, we reach out for help, do we not? But Tournier writes, there is a second weakness that is just as neurotic and often pathological as the weakness of weakness, and it is the pathology of strength. Let me read what he has to say, and I don't like lengthy quotes, but this one is worth it. He writes, if weakness leads to a sense of failure, strength too has its vicious cycle. One must go on being stronger and stronger for fear of suffering and even more crushing defeat, and this race in strength leads humanity inevitably to general collapse. I believe that there is a great illusion underlying both the despair of the weak and the unease of the strong and the misfortune of both. This great illusion is the very notion that there are two kinds of human beings, the strong and the weak. The truth is that human beings are much more alike than they think. 
What is different is the external mask, sparkling or disagreeable. Their outward reaction, strong or weak. These appearances, however, hide an identical inner personality. The external mask, the outward reaction, deceives everybody, the strong as well as the weak. All persons are, in fact, weak. All are weak because all are afraid. They all are afraid of being trampled underfoot. They are all afraid of their inner weaknesses being discovered. They all have secret faults. They all have a bad conscience on account of certain acts which they would like to keep covered up. They are all afraid of other persons and of God, of themselves, of life, and of death. End of quote. Can you resonate positively with those observations? Let me ask a question. Is there anyone here who's perfect? Never done anything wrong? If so, would you please stand? Years ago, a Southern Baptist preacher was waxing eloquent in his one sermon on sin, and he hammered the point, all have sinned, and that's true. And he kept pushing away in that, but the people were just there with glazed looks. They'd heard that sermon so often. And again, he says, is there anyone here who claims to be perfect? And, and please stand. And gave the invitation I gave you. And he went on to his next point, not expecting him to stand. He looked back about two-thirds of the way back in the sanctuary. There's a man standing. He said, sir, did you hear my question? He said, yes, I did. I ask you, is there anyone here who's perfect? He said, I heard your question. He said, you mean to tell me you've never, ever, ever done anything wrong or never left undone anything you should have done? And the man said, oh, no. He said, I'm just standing on behalf of my wife's first husband. I don't know anyone who claims perfection. And if you do, just check with your spouse or better still with your kids and they'll get you straightened out. Face up to that fact. The starting point to living beyond yourself. Step two, live with your back to the past. The Apostle Paul declares, he said, uh, forgetting what lies behind. Now, before you and I are privileged to forget, we need to remember. We need to remember some of the negative stuff that has brought us to where we are. My wife, if she were here, sitting with my daughter Janet and my mother Dorothy, she, at this point she'd get a little uneasy because she said, you've got to be careful, John, that you don't just stress grace to the point that people cover up stuff in their youth and childhood that can leak out around the edges if you just try to paper it over. It's important to work that stuff through. That's right. And also it's important to face up to why we are able to live with our back to the past. See, ours is an historic faith. That's the danger with much of the religion that's present in the United States today. And a lot of people I know, they say they are not religious, but they're spiritual. In sort of a vague, mystical kind of way. My friends, our faith and the privilege of forgiveness is based on what God has done in history. He sees us in our imperfections. 
in our sins. He became human in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, as we declared in our confession. And he went to the cross, and he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that I see on that cross on the ceiling of the church here, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we are privileged to bring the stuff of life, of our imperfections, and dump it at the foot of the cross, that hefty bag filled with the garbage we've put in it through the years. We're free to leave it there. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, Horatio Spafford wrote, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Now, I had to give the title of what I was going to say today some weeks ago. I probably would have changed the topic to cash for clunkers. Because that's what it is. This clunker of a life that I've produced for myself gets to be turned in. And a brand new creation is given by Jesus Christ. And those of us in the Reformed tradition understand that it's not just as a five-year-old when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And let's never minimize the privilege of our children coming in an early age. If perchance you came later in life, what a privilege it is to share with your kids the opportunity to receive Christ at a young age. And there's never too late to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But uh, the fact is, we are privileged also to daily stay close to the Lord in an attitude of repentance. I never live a day of perfection. That's how the Apostle Paul can say, I've not already obtained it. I'm not already perfect. We know he's clothed in Christ's righteousness, but he still sees his own imperfection. And yet he says, forgetting what lies behind. In order to forget, we have to remember what God has done for us. And then we're privileged to forget two things. One, the bad. Our sins. Some of us pick up a brand new hefty bag and start putting a new slop in there. And we've been carrying that for years. Daily we're privileged to bring that stuff to the Lord. Forgetting what lies behind. But we also need to forget some of the good. The fact is that... uh, Some of us can be living in the past. Days of greater accomplishment that we'll ever know again. How unfortunate that is. A friend of mine named Gordon MacDonald has written a book recently, and in it he talks about people he knows in the 80s that he's attracted to, in their 80s. And some in their 80s that he's not attracted to, and some even younger than that. And he finally figured out what was the difference. The people he found least attractive are the people who are always talking about the past. And he said, there's those people in those ripe years of life that still have enthusiasm for today. What a privilege to not always be caught up in the past, but to stay current both spiritually and in the relationships of life. But moving on, step one, what was it? Face up the fact you're not. Step two, Live with your back to the past. Step three, have a worthwhile goal. Do you have a worthwhile goal for living? Do you have a goal that you could put into a sentence? I have a friend on the board of World Vision. He keeps saying, now, how can we tell people what we do at World Vision? 
And someone will come out with a big, long mission statement and says, no, can you put it on the back of a business card? When the cabbie asks, what board are you going to? I'm going to World Vision. What is World Vision? They make, you know, glasses? What do they do? Have it in one succinct sentence. See? Question. Do you have a worthwhile goal? Is your life multidimensional, or are you living in one dimension? I've had a number of theologians I've read through the years, but one of my favorites for a number of decades now has been uh, Brigitte Bardot. You find that strange? Uh, well, let me share some of her theology. Back in 1972, when I started reading her theology, she was beginning to decline as a sex symbol. And she was interviewed by Vogue magazine. And the interview asked her what her definition of getting old would be. And she said, quote, the day I could no longer have the man I'd like. She asked, was asked what she's looking for in a man, that he attract me physically. And then she went on to describe herself as, quote, the most important sex symbol of all time, end of quote. Now that wasn't theology. Here's where she got theological. She said, time will destroy me one day as it destroys everything. But no one else will ever be Bardot. I am the only Bardot, and my species is unique, end of quote. What's so theological about that statement? It summarizes much of what in Christian theology we call anthropology. She said, time will destroy me someday as it destroys what? She did not say everyone. She said everything. She was able to see that that which marked her life was a commodity in nature of increasing or declining value. And if we live one-dimensionally, we too can play the commodities market with our life, just as she did. Now, I've kept up with her a bit through the years, and not too long ago she wrote her autobiography, now in her 60s, and even a bit older now. And she had this to say in her autobiography, quote, time will destroy me someday as it destroys everything. But she goes on to say, I think about dying every day. Quote, it's the decomposition that gets me. You work so hard to look so good, and then you simply rot away like that. End of quote. My friends, that's what one-dimensional living is. On the commodities market, we may be doing very well one day, but then our health may break. Or the economy may melt down. I know some very wealthy people that are devastated. They're still very wealthy, but they've lost 40%. And they're wondering if there's a Madoff right around the corner, of which they're unaware in their life. And we can see ourselves, see, in a, but the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul talks about, living beyond oneself, not locked up in oneself in one-dimensional living. If you don't have a one-sentence statement that can describe your goal for living, let me suggest one for you. Back when I pastored in downtown Pittsburgh, I succeeded a great 
man by the name of Dr. Robert Lamont. I had an associate, Bob Letzinger, who served with him and with me, and Letzinger told me the story about one day he was sitting in the outer office, and you have to picture, here's the pastor's office, there's a door, there's the pastor's secretary, there's a door, there's a receptionist's desk with some seats, and there's a door where people came up to the office, up the stairs, opened the door, and they'd sit out in the reception area, and he was waiting to see Dr. Lamont at his appointment, and um, the door opened, and in came a man, and he said to the receptionist, I'd like to see Dr. Lamont. Oh, she said, do you have an appointment? He sees people by appointment. He said, no, he said, but I went to Princeton Seminary with him 25 years ago, and haven't seen him since then. I've been on the mission field, and only passing through Pittsburgh just for a few minutes, and I'd love to see my old friend. Well, you know, the receptionist called the secretary, the secretary called the pastor. Both doors burst open almost simultaneously as Lamont rushed through one, went to the other, and the two men embraced, and then instinctively realized they hadn't even looked at each other. They pushed themselves away from each other, and the missionary said, Bob, what's new? And Letzinger described a pause, and Lamont said, I'm just trying to discover the will of God and do it. Wow. What a statement. If you can't reduce your life, mission, and goal to one sentence, why not take that? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, multidimensional, not just for this life, but for the life to come. To discover the will of God and do it. Now, be careful on that. I know I can announce that I almost gave this topic how to discover the will of God. And I can get a great crowd to come and hear that. If I ever gave the topic how to do the will of God, I can empty a room pretty fast. <laughs> Why? We want something new, something entertaining, something exciting, see? But what's more exciting than to discover the will of God for your life and do it to my friends? There's the will right there. Page after page of God's dreams for your life in conduct, in attitude. And in His grace that wraps you up in our failure to live up to all He dreams for us. Okay, I run out of time. Step one was what? You're not as good in learning as the first hour was this morning. <laughs> I need another half hour, Dan. What's the first step? Don't look at the screen. Come on. The second? Live with your back to the past. The third? Have a worthwhile goal. You know, if you've got to carry a screen with you all week, you better have written this down, you know. Okay. What's the fourth step? Some of you cheated. You were at the first service this morning. <laughs> step four, go for broke. Give life everything you've got. But for God's sake, yours and everybody else, don't take step four before you've taken steps one, two, and three. The freeways of Southern California, the moral freeways, are filled with the wrecks of those that have taken step four without taking steps one, two, and three. How many of you were raised on a farm? How many of you? Are, many more at this service. That's interesting, at the first service. Those of you raised in a farm, how, let's put, how many of you have been to a farm meal? A farm meal. Oh, good. How many kinds of meat are there? Usually two or three, right? How many different kinds of dessert? 
Several, right? Isn't that wonderful? My dear grandmother, my mother's mother, a farm in northern Michigan, she had these wonderful farm meals, and the farm women would bring all this wonderful food, and she would often go out in the farmyard and pick one of her choicest chickens, and she had a little something with, I believe, two nails or something, that she would place the chicken's head in there and stretch its neck and then hold its body down and then would take a little hatchet-like thing and go like that and leave a bit of the neck and the head right there on the little block. And guess what happened to the rest of the chicken? It showed much more energy in that moment than it ever showed in its life before. It ran around like crazy for, I don't I never timed it. Was it 30 seconds, 40 seconds? Feathers and blood going everywhere. And then what happened? It suddenly went plop. That's exactly what happens to you and me if we take step four, going for broke, without first admitting that we're not perfect. Living with our backs to the past on the base of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Having the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, a statement similar to, if not, to discover the will of God and do it. Then we're privileged to go for broke. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Reinhold Niebuhr, the ethicist, said that if you have a high ethical ideal out there. You may never get all the way there in this life, but you certainly will get much closer to it if you head in that direction and give it all you've gotten. See, the theology of justification is what God has done for us in Christ on the cross. The theology of a life lived in relationship with Jesus Christ is a doctrine of sanctification as we grow in wholeness in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. None of us in this life ever achieving perfection clothed in Christ's righteousness, but privileged, empowered by the Holy Spirit to give every day the best that we've got with whatever limited or enormous or in-between resources God has given us. Let me conclude with this. On my desk, I have two symbols. One, an old rugged cross carved out of olive wood by my friend Harry Parrish, who I met the first month out of Princeton Seminary in Tulsa, drawing out in a psychiatric ward in a Tulsa hospital a 40-year deacon in the church. When I asked him if he ever had come to faith in Jesus Christ, he said, I don't find spirituality at church. I find it in AA with my higher power. He said, I don't look like it right now, but he said, uh, generally, it works for me. And I said, Harry, did you know that the name of your higher power is, what is it? He said, higher power. I said, no, it's Jesus Christ. Sam Shoemaker helped Bill W., redo the steps that didn't work, and they came straight out of the Bible. And Harry, over a period of weeks, finally said, John, I'm prepared now to declare the name of my higher power to be Jesus Christ. And he gave me that cross after going to the Holy Land with me, and it's inscribed 1966, Harry and Louise. And in his will, he made provision for me to come back and to tell people at his memorial service how Harry came to know the name of his higher power was Jesus Christ. The second symbol I have is a Greek discus thrower. Stripped down in the arena. Every effort going into life. You say, well, that's pagan. The cross is spiritual. No, my friends, the same Apostle Paul who talks about glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ says, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've finished the course. The athletic nature of the Christian life. The cross releases us by the power of the Holy Spirit to give life everything we've got. Dear Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Christ Church Oakbrook. 
If there's someone here this morning who's never received you as Savior, may they open their life to you right now, experiencing your forgiveness. Knowing that the only unforgivable sin is to say no to the Holy Spirit, who is saying, come to Jesus now. If there's one here who's wandered away from you and knows better days with you, bring them back to you, Lord. And for the one who knows you and loves you and yet is struggling with the daily realities of life, encourage us all, Lord, to face the fact we're not perfect, to claim the privilege of living with our back to the past, and, Lord, to live this day, this week, endeavoring to discover your will and do it What a worthwhile goal. And Lord, then to give life everything we have, going for broke, empowered by you. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said,